Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Vanity Fair. Josh, what do you think people get essentially wrong about Joe Biden and the kind of president he's been? That he's the same kind of Democrat now that he was when he came to Washington in the early 70s. You know, Mr. Corporate America, best friend of business. Hmm. That's Joshua Green. His latest book is The Rebels. Elizabeth Moore, Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the struggle for a new American politics. Josh is also a national correspondent for Bloomberg Businessweek. And I'm Brian Stelter. Welcome to Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive. This week, we're going inside the battle for the soul of the Democratic Party. It's going to be one of the most important topics of the year as Biden seeks re-election. And Josh, your, your book offers a framework for the 2024 election. Trump populism versus a form of populism on the left not necessarily identified with Biden, but with figures like Warren and Sanders. So what is the populism of the left? Where did it come from? Well, you know, I I wanted to do this book on kind of the rise of left-wing populism to answer that question. Because, you know, in my telling of the story, uh, what really kicked it off for Democrats was the financial crisis of 2008 and the backlash to that crisis from uh, you know, the broad middle class of Democratic voters who who just were never happy and satisfied with the recovery. You know, if you remember, we had seven years of austerity and people lost their homes and their mortgages while the banks were getting bailed out. And that caused an enormous backlash in American politics. To me, it was sort of like the tectonic political event like of my lifetime. My last book, Devil's Bargain was on sort of the rise of right-wing populism, but this book, uh, The Rebels, is about the specific politicians who emerged from that backlash on the left. First Elizabeth Warren, then Bernie Sanders, and then Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and how they ultimately affected Joe Biden and his presidency. Where were you in September of 2008? Where were you when, you know, the world's, you know, kind of collapsed a little bit? And, And do you remember it being as significant at the time as we now know it was and is to people's politics. Absolutely. I, at the time, I was uh, a political writer for The Atlantic um, in Washington, D.C., and I was like a freelance columnist for the Boston Globe. And I remember just watching it, you know, at first with curiosity and then with kind of growing horror as the full scope of what was happening began to unfold. 
Um, I think what was even kind of more interesting from my vantage point, though, was the period just after that where Barack Obama gets elected and he makes Tim Geithner his treasury secretary. And, you know, they go to work battling this crisis and trying to prevent a Great Depression. Uh, at the same time as a Boston Globe columnist, uh, I was also getting to know Elizabeth Warren, who was appointed back long before she was famous, still a Harvard professor. She was appointed as uh, the bailout oversight cop. And so I would be spending a lot of time with this really intelligent, passionate, forceful critic of, of, of Barack Obama and Tim Geithner and the Democratic administration. Uh, and then I would go during the day and embed with Tim Geithner for a big Atlantic profile as I was doing. <laughs> that was really the seeds of the book was this sort of like, like split message cognitive dissonance in my professional life. What did you learn from having access to both sides, so to speak? Like what I learned, it was what? So literally like during the day, um, this is back when like major politicians and political figures would like give you enormous access for magazine profiles, not just like a, you know, a, a 30 minute supervised interview, but like you would embed over the course of weeks and months. And so during the day I would go to the treasury and I was hanging out with Tim Geithner and traveling with him. And Geithner really thought that they were doing this wonderful job of handling the crisis, the economy didn't fall into recession. And he had this big plan he would tell me about, you know, how to stuff the banks full of money so that taxpayers didn't wind up having to sort of pay for a financial crisis the way they usually did. Uh, and he really thought, and, and the administration really thought they were putting these big points on the board. Uh, you know, and then I would go talk to Warren, who was the oversight critic, who was just as passionate about the fact that this bailout was not working because she was focused on the kind of middle class people she studied as an academic. And you could see every day, every week, the number of mortgage defaults rising and personal bankruptcies. And so it was this this who, kind of... Right. Who was right then? You know... I, I get into this a lot in, in in the rebels. They both were in a sense. I mean, in, in terms of the conditions that Geithner set for himself, we want to prevent the economy from cascading into a second Great Depression. He, he and Obama definitely succeeded, and they did things like they helped keep the auto industry from growing bankrupt. That that definitely deserve credit for. But but they ignored or didn't see the broader plight of the middle class that, that, that Warren was concerned with. And I think looking back now with a historical perspective, you know, that Warren and her crowd were much more in the right and pointing and saying, this is a serious, serious problem uh, that the, the government needs to be helping these people. And the fact that the government wasn't able to do it to a sufficient degree. Even a democratic administration, which is supposed to be the party of the middle class, I think helps explain the backlash that ensued over the next decade. And, you know, the most obvious manifestations of that in the short term were the Tea Party and the Occupy Wall Street movements. But pretty quickly, it bled into electoral politics, um, like most visibly in the rise of Donald Trump to the White House. But also on the left, where Warren emerged then, like not just as a professor, but as a senator and a kind of splinter movement leader within the Democratic Party. And then eventually, of course, Bernie Sanders with his presidential run and everything that's ensued since then. So it's a really interesting story of kind of modern U.S. political history and how this crisis uh, was an earthquake that just had so many aftershocks that we're still experiencing today. Yeah, I sometimes feel like the right-wing populism, the energy on the right, the, you know, the Breitbarts and the Steve Bannons, and that was the subject of your last book, gets a lot of attention from the media. There's a lot of awareness of, of what right-wing populist voters and politicians are saying. I sometimes feel that the left, I don't want to say equivalent, but the left's version of that doesn't get the same 
respect or attention. And I don't know if that resonates with you at all. Does that feel true at all to you? It it does. And one of the reasons I think that is, is that so much of right-wing populism is situated around cultural issues, you know, attacking immigrants and those, these sort of like really resonant- Fox News stories. Devightful things. Fox News stories. And you can go even further, like kind of the Breitbart stuff that we see and now on Newsmax and just this whole alternate universe of, you know, angry- people going after you know, immigrants, minorities, gay people, trans people, what have you, um, you know, it's it's more jarring and kind of more provocative, I think, to, to readers, to viewers, to producers, to media folks. Whereas on the left, I mean, A, you don't really quite have the same kind of left-wing hermetically sealed political universe the way you do on the right. It's a little bit more grounded in reality. Um, and, and also, look, I, I just think except in times of like a really serious financial crisis like we had in 2008 or like we had in in, in the months after uh, the COVID pandemic hit. Yeah. You know, economics isn't something that kind of fires up people's blood that much the way that you know, immigration does on the right. And so it tends to be something that kind of creeps up on you until all of a sudden there's this big explosion. And instead of Hillary Clinton getting elected in 2016, you wind up with Donald Trump you know, and send America sort of spiraling down this entirely different path. Mm-hmm. Right. You quote some startling statistics in your book about how many Bernie Sanders voters in battleground states eventually picked Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. Does Biden have a chance at, at winning those voters back or, or did he already in 2020? I, you know, I think the story of Biden's win to a large extent in 2020 was um, due to the fact that he he kind of changed his stripes. I mean, you know, Biden. This is what you said at the very beginning. He's not the same it, politician that he was. It, you know, exactly. Biden is. He, I mean, he's just like a politician in the old sense. He's somebody who kind of locates his politics at the center of wherever the Democratic Party happens to be. Hmm. In the 1970s, as we remember from his fights with Kamala Harris in those 2020 debates, you know, he was against busing and all those sorts of things. But if you flash forward to 2020, the party had really had evolved in in, in a left populist direction, especially on economic issues. And Biden was there too. He wasn't quite as far out on the spectrum um, as Warren or Sanders or AOC, uh, but he really listened to a lot of those things. And I think, you know, people forget Biden was in the White House for the 2008 crash or or the the recovery from it in 2009 with Obama, saw everything that went right and everything that went wrong. And I think Joe Biden learned from that. And when he got into the White House, his response to the financial crisis he inherited, and this was the one that happened as soon as the COVID pandemic hit, was much different, much more robust. As Biden's people like to say, it was built from the middle class out. And so in a lot of ways, he accepted the critique that Elizabeth Warren was making of Democrats back in 2009, Mm -hmm. uh, and he changed the way Democrats govern. And you know, as a as a business journalist, I, I work at Bloomberg. I'm kind of surrounded by these financial economic numbers all day. Like, wow, you can really see the effect that it's having. I mean, unemployment is already back at a record low. Stock markets are near all time highs. Consumer sentiment is turning around. Uh, like in a big kind of macroeconomic sense, I think Biden and the populace got a lot of things right. Um, hmm. Whether or not that's enough to let him beat Donald Trump again in the fall if Trump if Trump is the nominee as as, as I expect him to be. We'll see because it really hasn't it hasn't translated yet to political support. But just as far as kind of the raw economic numbers and what he's managed to do, it's a pretty impressive achievement. 
Biden's going to be back on the campaign trail this week in Allentown, Pennsylvania, touting his economic agenda. Uh, here he is a few months ago in Baltimore announcing a tech hub. Here's here's a part of what Biden said to, you know, hear the way he frames this. All this is part of my strategy to invest in America and invest in Americans. It's working. We're creating good jobs and communities all across the country, including places where for decades factories have been shut down, hollowed out when jobs moved overseas to find cheaper employment. Over the past few decades, these communities lost more than jobs. They lost a sense of their sense of dignity, of opportunity, sense of pride. We're going to change all that. Tech hubs are going to bring this work to where people live in communities all across America. The press has uh, started to call my plan Bidenomics. <laughs> well, under Bidenomics, you don't have to leave home or your family to get a good job. So I'm not fully sold on the term Bidenomics. I'm not sure it's the best branding, but he is putting points on the board. I think there's no denying that, as you just said. Yeah, I don't know. Look, I'm actually okay with the terminology. I'm okay with the sales pitch. I think it's the salesman himself that's the problem there. Like Biden, you know, in that clip, like he sounds like Father Time or something. You know, he's old, not, not a lot same, of passion. Yeah, there. it's not the same energy that we saw recently in Valley Forge. Uh, you know, he 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 was giving rave reviews for these speeches about democracy. But yeah, his typical speech about Bidenomics doesn't have the same energy. It doesn't have the kind of the force and the passion that you would really want. That's going to get people excited about what he's what he's done. And the the, the irony of it is that yeah, he really does have an impressive economic record, especially when you consider the fact that he came into office in the middle of this pandemic. And, and look where we are today. I think he could do a better job of selling that. He could. But I think the interesting point here as it relates to your book is that uh, Biden has been influenced. He has been uh, swayed by the likes of Warren and Sanders and AOC. Right. He. He, he is not he is not the politician he was 20 years ago, and the party is not where it was 20 years ago. So the, the people you're profiling, the rebels, they've had a real impact. Yeah, they really have. And I mean, to me, that was driven home. I was in reporting for the book, and I was talking to a White House official and said, you know, it seems like everybody's getting along. You've, you've pulled a lot of warring people into the administration. But, you know, this is Joe Biden. You know, when I came to Washington in 2000, you know, he was this big corporate guy, the senator from corporate America. What does he really think of 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 Warren and, and Sanders? Like, is he kind of just kind of holding his nose to to get their support? Mm -hmm. uh, and the official who is no lefty said, "No, like he really believes in this stuff." And mm -hmm. you know, if you want to know, like, who's giving Biden headaches in the White House? It's Joe Manchin, the West Virginia senator, and Kirsten Cinema, the senator from Arizona. Nobody complains about Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. So to me, that's that's a real measure of how the party has shifted over the last generation and how Joe Biden himself has shifted as a politician compared to what he once was in the 1970s and 80s. So up next, let's go back in time to the 70s and talk about how the Dems got here. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? 
How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Hive today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash Hive. We're back here on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. I'm Brian Selter, speaking with Joshua Green, author of the new book, The Rebels. And Josh, in the book, you point to a particular moment in 1978 when the Democrats abandoned their New Deal principles and embraced the free market. President Jimmy Carter had promised a radical overhaul of the tax code that he promised would eliminate policies that favored the rich. He promised to tax capital gains, the same as income, among other things. So what happened? Well, you know, let, let me let me frame this answer by saying, you know, the, the big event in the book is the 2008 financial crisis. But even at the time, I remember wondering, like, why? Like, why did this happen? How is it that the Democrats, who are supposed to be the party of labor, the party of the working class, wound up uh, hand in hand with Wall Street? And the answer to that question kind of took me back to a particular moment in 1978 in Jimmy Carter's White House when you know Carter was grappling with a lot of the same problems that Biden is only to a more extreme degree mm-hmm. inflation you know the economy was roiling gas prices were high everybody was kind of angry and upset the fed wasn't helping him out and democrats at that time were sort of intellectually exhausted they mm-hmm. didn't have answers to how to fix the economy and they knew it and In 1978, Jimmy Carter, who was sort of a a Southern populist himself, had decided that the thing he was going to do was balance out the tax code in favor of workers away from the rich, rewrite the tax code to favor them. And what ended up happening was Jimmy Carter got completely rolled. Um, The rising forces of business and Wall Street prevailed on Democrats in Congress and in Carter's own administration that the real answer to the economic malaise was this thing that they called capital formation was essentially let's give big tax cuts and capital gains breaks to investors, banks, Wall Street. It later became known as supply side economics under Ronald Reagan. But lacking a better answer, Democrats kind of went along with it. And it didn't work for Jimmy Carter, uh, got beat badly by Ronald Reagan, but it set Democrats on a new path uh, moving into the 80s and 90s, where instead of Wall Street being an enemy, being someone that they fought against on behalf of labor, Democrats in the 80s kind of worked hand in hand and took a much more market driven approach to Democratic policies that Mm. worked for a time. Uh, Certainly Bill Clinton's presidency would be testament to that, but ultimately broke down in the early 2000s with the mortgage meltdown and then the global financial crisis that led to the rise of my characters. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And now there's this impression, there's this maybe even a stereotype. Democrats are the elite college-educated party. How how true, how fair is that impression? It is true and it is fair. I mean, Democrats in the late 70s were the party of labor. And back then, that meant primarily white working-class voters. But the party did have a turn um, to, to Wall Street, to college-educated people in the early 1980s. Uh, they were known as Atari Democrats, this kind of new generation of, of kind of third-way Democrats. 
Gary Hart, Paul Songus, people like that, the composition of its supporters became more college-oriented, college-educated, and changed kind of what the median Democrat looked like. So if you look today, there's a huge educational divide. People with college degrees and even more so with graduate degrees tend to be Democrats. They tend to care a lot about cultural issues, maybe a little bit less so about the economic issues, which were much more front and center when the average Democrat was a working class blue collar guy who worked in a factory. And figures like Warren and Sanders, they've been warning about this this change to the party. They, they've been trying to drag it back, I think, right toward labor. How successful can they be? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, before the 2008 financial crisis, it's not as though these voices didn't exist. I mean, Bernie Sanders himself was one of the most prominent. Uh, you know, I remember like seeing Bernie on the floor of the House when I came to Washington long before the crisis. And, you know, people knew knew about Bernie Sanders. They knew he was always railing against Wall Street, but nobody, nobody paid it a ton of attention. I think what changed was the context of the message that once the financial crisis hit, Everyone could see, oh, wow, something has gone badly wrong with American politics, with Mm. with the American economy. Uh, And maybe these folks that we've been ignoring deserve a bigger platform. And so you you begin to see the rise of politicians like Warren, who suddenly had a platform, not just in Washington, but I tell the story in my book about how she became one of Jon Stewart's favorite guests on The Daily Show and how Jon Stewart kind of took off this brand of anti-Wall Street politics and fed it into the broader popular culture in a way that shifted uh, what Democratic voters cared about and forced politicians to respond. One of the one of the big shifts, I think, has been the reemergence of of labor, of of labor unions. Um, We now see them coming back, whether it strikes with teachers unions or the big and successful Mm -hmm. uh, UAW auto workers strike that Joe Biden was involved with. Or, or the organization of a lot of media outlets. You see that now, too. Uh, th- there's a kind of revivified labor that I think owes a lot to the resurgence of this left populist politics since the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I guess this is a broad question, but I wonder, Josh, when you talk to these politicians, uh, is it striking? Is it ironic? What is it that, you know, Sanders led the way, Warren led the way? They could not lead the way all the way to the White House. They, they were not able to win the presidency. It fell to, you know, to Joe Biden to carry some of their ideas and uh, and sign them into law. Yeah, I mean, there is there is so much anger and bitterness on the left. I mean, it's receded a little bit in the last couple of years. But at the time, you know, it's felt like it seemed like, uh, you know, in the fall of 2019, it was just the, the left populist moment. Uh, the billionaires who wanted to get into the race, like Michael Bloomberg and Tom Steyer, had decided not to. And I remember talking to Warren and saying, you know, if you look at polls, like voters really just kind of want to get rid of Donald Trump. And she kind of winked and said, well, you know, I know what the polls say, but I also know that you know, if I get elected on this big, robust, full spectrum left populist plan, that I'll have a mandate and I can kind of get that enacted. Um, and, and I think she wound up being wrong about that. And as soon as you know the primary voting started, the, the problems were, were evident because there were two left populist candidates. Bernie Sanders uh, and Elizabeth Warren both splitting the vote, uh, which made it hard for either, made made it impossible for either one of them uh, to generate a majority. So as much as folks on the left would have loved a Bernie Sanders in the White House or an Elizabeth Warren in the White House, they didn't get it. 
Uh, but as I argue in the rebels, they, they kind of wound up with the next best thing, which was um, a, a safe, electable, moderate president in Joe Biden who was able to defeat Donald Trump. That was the thing that every Democratic voter wanted. But then once he got to the White House, begin to institute big parts of this left populist agenda. Well, that sets us up perfectly for the next part of our conversation. More with Joshua Green in just a minute. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive. I'm Brian Seltzer, talking with Joshua Green, author of the new book, The Rebels. Josh, do you feel like you're the counter-programming right now? I mean, there's so much energy right now on the GOP primary, Donald Trump about to sweep the Iowa caucuses, and here you are writing about the Democrats, and, and you know, specifically, you know, these, these rebel Democrats who are trying to reshape the Democratic Party. But there's not, there's not a viable primary, right? Dean Phillips is yeah. not putting up points against Biden. <laughs> so, so are you the counter-programming? Yeah, I think so. I think of it as like they've left me the stage to themselves. You know, there isn't a big fight in the Democratic Party. There isn't a lot of focus on kind of the ideology or even really Biden's record that much. There is, you know, from Trump and the right, um, but but not on the left. And so I thought it'd be a good time to kind of come out with a book that really tells kind of the deep history uh, of the Democratic Party and how Joe Biden got to where he is. Um, part of the part of the way I think of the book is as a way of kind of understanding the scope of the 2024 election. If it turns out to be, as everyone expects, Donald Trump versus Joe Biden in the fall, then what it's really going to be is, is Trump's right-leaning version of populism against Biden's left-leaning version of populism. And I've spent the last couple of uh, you know months, years, I guess at this point, you know, traveling through swing states. I was in uh, Steel Country in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania, a while back for the book, looking at how have these policies actually influenced people on the ground. You know, and it's interesting to see that even though there isn't going to be a Democratic primary and people aren't going to be choosing between the progressive candidate and the centrist candidate and so on, that this is still a live question and it's still a big issue that's going to be a shaping force in the fall. Right, right, for sure. You mentioned earlier you do believe it will be Trump. Is there anything that that gets in the way of uh, his coronation? I don't know. Yeah, I feel like the the media collectively is trying to will a Nikki Haley challenge into being um, just to make it more exciting to cover the Republican primaries. Um, you know, I'm I'm not immune to that to that desire either. I'm heading out to Iowa and I'll be in New Hampshire. And, you know, all of us in the political press corps want to think we're out there for a reason. But 
if you look at the poll numbers, if you talk to Republicans on the ground, there is absolutely no reason I've come across to think um, that Haley really has a fighting chance. Uh, if I were a betting man, which I'm not, my money, my money would be on Donald Trump to emerge as the Republican nominee. There's a point you make toward the end of the rebels saying Trump didn't reinvent politics. He just, you know, he exploited grievances that were there because of uh, things like the economic crisis, because of the collapse of 2008. Um, but he didn't reinvent politics. Is anyone on the left reinventing politics? To go back to the beginning of our interview, Brian, we're talking about me being embedded with Tim Geithner back in 2009. Uh, in the Treasury, in the aftermath of the crisis. And Geithner had a phrase that he loved, sort of pompous. He said, you know, the American voters are angry. They want Old Testament justice, meaning yeah. go after the bankers, go after the politicians, throw them in jail. But Geithner and Obama said, you know, that's that's not good for the economy. That's not what we want to do. Uh, and along comes Trump, who, you know, what is he if not Old Testament justice personified, you know, and goes out there, um, and really, really kind of encapsulates the anger that a lot of people were feeling and gets elected president. I think that my three characters, Warren, Bernie, and AOC, all to a degree represent that same kind of anger, that same kind of Old Testament justice on the left. And the fact that all three of them resonated with voters, with the Democratic electorate, and were able to kind of build up this left populist wing of the Democratic Party, one that Biden has largely adopted, I, I think shows that this really is a powerful force and that it will continue to be in November if the race that we wind up with is Trump versus Biden round two. Right, right. So beyond 2024, let's talk about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. There's a notion in your book that it's like she was born to run for president. Um, there's a quote from a Warren advisor. You say, AOC is the one marking the future for the left in the post-Biden era. So. What what has she done since she arrived in Washington? You, you describe how she's been sophisticated in her approach to politics. How, what has Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's approach been? Well, you know, she got elected as you know literally a radical outsider who stormed Nancy Pelosi's office and occupied it. You know, even before she'd been sworn into the House, so no one can can doubt her her kind of uh, left wing credentials. Um, but but AOC for her first six months in Congress wasn't particularly effective as a legislator. She was great at getting attention. And I think that that was amplified by the fact that Fox News latched onto her uh, as this sort of, you know, terrifying for their viewers representation of all that, all that Democrats represent. Um, but AOC herself has been a really interesting and admirable political figure to watch because once she figured out that occupying Pelosi's office wasn't the way to bring about left-wing changes in Washington, she started to learn how to work in Congress. You know, she's wonderful at oversight hearings and at kind of shaping the, the, the media narrative that comes out of that, putting attention on different issues, uh, and also working with Democrats who uh, you know, she doesn't really agree with um, Politically, I mean, she, she'd said at one point in an interview, you know, in any other country, Joe Biden and I wouldn't even be in the same party. But I think Ocasio-Cortez, to her credit, recognized that Joe Biden is the president. And if I want to get my policies enacted, if I want to uh, move forward on a Green New Deal, then I've got to work with Biden. And she was able to do that. And Biden passed 
what wound up being the largest climate bill in U.S. history, a $300 billion climate bill. It just wasn't advertised as such. You know, Biden wisely, I think, called it the, inf- the Inflation Reduction Act so that people like Joe Manchin and centrist Democrats wouldn't freak out about it. But what it really is, is a, a pretty impressive achievement for folks like Ocasio-Cortez, Warren, Sanders, uh, and all sorts of progressives on the left inside of Congress and outside who've been fighting for all these years for better climate legislation. Uh, This isn't a Green New Deal, uh, but it's a big step in that direction. And I think that's an important achievement. Uh, Here's AOC talking in 2021 uh, from her perch on the Financial Services Committee about how the last couple of years have upended conventional wisdom about fiscal policy. And so I think that one of the things that would be interesting for us to examine is that we should probably revisit some of the basic macroeconomic assumptions about the U.S. economy and not take for granted that inflation is due to one thing or another or that full employment is impossible in the United States of America. And I believe that's been reiterated uh, at the White House um, with very promising um, with with very promising assertions and ambitious goals and trying to make sure that every American has a dignified job. To the extent that the future of the Democratic Party is shaped by the AOCs and not the Bidens, uh, wh- where is the party heading, you know, policy-wise? Where where might we be by the end of the decade? Yeah, and I, and I think as that clip demonstrated, look, uh, what we really have learned from the rise of this brand of populism and from Biden's presidency uh, is that big, forceful government action in the face of a crisis really can have profound effects. Uh, you know, I, I work at Bloomberg, and so I get to talk to a lot of economists, a lot of financial types. And they sort of marvel at the economic numbers. After after the 2008 financial crisis, there were years of of grinding austerity. It took seven years to regain all the jobs that were lost. But after the COVID crash and after Biden's stimulus and all the different policies he put in place to try and keep middle-class Americans afloat, uh, we got those jobs back in two years. And today, you know, the unemployment rate is as low as it was going back to the Eisenhower administration. Um, wages are rising, gas prices are falling, at least economically, people are in a pretty good place. It just hasn't, for Biden, translated through into political support yet. But I think for the next generation of Democrats and for populists like Ocasio-Cortez, what this shows is that their ideas work and that if you put them into practice, they'll have the effect that you want. Josh, thanks so much for previewing the, the book with us. It's a fantastic read, once again, called The Rebels. Joshua Green, thank you so much. Thanks, Brian. This episode of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair is produced by Michael May. Jordan Bell is our executive producer. Our engineer is Kirby Glass. Mixing is by Bob Mallory. And I'm Brian Stelter. Thanks so much for listening. You can find me on Twitter and threads at Brian Stelter. Email me anytime, bstelter at gmail.com with your ideas for future episodes. And we'll be back next Thursday with more Inside the Hive. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? 
there's a new translation of the Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> Thank you.